are tuned into How to OT, making research more accessible and more consumable for the occupational therapy practitioner. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today I am joined by an amazing guest. Her first name is Ariana. Her last name starts with a G. That's right, Ariana Gonzalez. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Of course. Ariana is one of my classmates here at WashU. You actually got your master's degree in mm -hmm. occupational therapy in 2016 and mm -hmm. are now finishing up your post-professional occupational therapy doctorate. Why did you decide to come back to school? Yeah, so I actually only practiced for a couple years, for two years before I came back. I've always kind of had a passion for um, underserved populations and Honestly, the more that I practiced, and this is in various different fields, it was like in the hospital and home health, inpatient mental health, inpatient peds, outpatient peds, you know, a lot of different areas, but I just kept seeing a lot of issues, I guess you could say, with our healthcare system. And I saw a lot of people falling through the cracks and, you know, not really getting services I felt like they deserved or that they needed. That kind of brought me back to wanting to do more and having a having kind of a feeling of I won't be satisfied until I go back and get more education and, and knowledge about how I can either affect policy or learn how to develop programs for these kinds of underserved populations. So that's kind of, it was that that kind of drove me to go back to school. Hearing you say that makes a lot of sense to me because it's very evident in my interactions with you that you do have these big ideas on how to generate change. Mm -hmm. And I feel like in class, you're always really good at taking whatever topic we're talking about or the knowledge we're, we're gaining and applying it on a large scale in a way to affect a lot of people. So that does make yeah. sense. Well, thanks. Yeah, I, that is, it's just how my brain works. It's exactly kind of like what you said. It's just where I automatically go with things. Today, we're going to discuss two of your main research emphases. Yes sleep in people experiencing homelessness and program development for underserved populations, which you already mentioned. So today I thought we would start by talking about your work studying sleep in the American homeless population. Was there something or someone that inspired you to take on this project and, and research topic? Honestly, I think it was a combination of a few things. Um, so when I decided to come back to school. Um, I'm from Michigan, so I didn't even honestly know what WashU was, which people think that's crazy because it's an amazing school, but I didn't, I didn't know. I actually found it through looking up uh, Dr. Baum's research um, because I was also interested in stroke for a long time, and I found that she was there, and then through that, I kind of started communicating with WashU and kind of trying to see what kinds of opportunities there might be for me here, and that's how I found Dr. Quinn Tominski, um, who was literally in the process of developing a program for a homeless population in St. Louis. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is seriously perfect. It's program development and it's working with an underserved population. And I had never had experience with this population uh, prior, but she was awesome. I mean, I had a phone conversation with her. I like felt her passion through the phone and I was super excited because it felt like a great fit. So th that's how I kind of got started with the population. And I was kind of helping her and the other students at the time develop that program. And in the midst of it all, I was kind of just like trying to figure out what my focus was going to be because there, you could focus on so many things with that population. And 
I don't know. I think I've always been kind of like obsessed with Maslow's hierarchy because I was thinking about it one day and that's how I kind of fell on the sleep topic. And I realized that there could be such a stronger link between sleep and all of the health issues that this population has, all the substance use um, issues its population has. So I was like, okay, someone's got to look into it if they haven't. And I did some research and really barely anything out there on homelessness and sleep. So that's kind of what got me going with that topic. Let's talk more about that, that background research you did. There's so much background research that goes into any doctoral research project. And of course, for this one as well, what were some of the main takeaways from your literature review? The best and I guess most recent uh, study out there was a study in France. They did a huge population. I can't remember how many um, individuals they had, but population of homeless individuals and they explored sleep and they found that um, the homeless population slept less than the general population, had more daytime fatigue, and were more likely to use substances in order to fall asleep than the general population. There was one, another really interesting study um, that explored sleep, but within um, a, a larger qualitative study. So sleep was kind of one of the findings and people were talking about how these occupations, um, I like to call occupations of survival, um, like finding food, finding a place to sleep, all of those kinds of things are so extremely difficult um, and time consuming. And that's kind of like all someone has time for when they're experiencing homelessness, that it's kind of like cruel that we expect them to be able to do the higher level things like get dressed and look nice for an interview and actually engage in an interview and and just turn into kind of like a productive human being kind of out of nowhere when their basic needs aren't really getting met. So those were, I think, the two studies that stood out the most. Um, And a lot of other research that I pulled for this was not really specific to this population with sleep, but just specific to this population's issues overall, like their higher level, there's a higher level of mental um, illness, a higher level of substance use, a higher level of trauma, all of those things within this population. But then I drew links to those things in sleep. If you have a mental illness, you're, it, it'll affect how you're sleeping. And then if you are not sleeping well, it can affect your symptoms of mental illness. And same with trauma, same with all of these other things that I saw that were going on with this population. So that's kind of like there was a gap that I really wanted to explore and try to make that link a little bit stronger between sleep and all these negative health effects, um, which in turn affect, you know, their ability to do things during the day and get things done. Absolutely. I find that connection so interesting um, and would love to dive into it a little bit more with you. Um, But first, how would you define sleep as an occupation? I would say It's one of the few occupations that we need for survival um, and our performance in it determines our potential engagement for all other occupations we engage in. So we spend a third of our lives engaging in this occupation, yet it doesn't really seem to get a lot of recognition or attention at all. And I think that's kind of weird to me. And I know that um, the the OTPF includes all the sleep activities in their definition of sleep, Um, like what you do before you go to sleep, like all of those kinds of routines that's included in your sleep performance. But I think 
it's an area where there are a lot of different things happening, even though it seems like you're just kind of, your body's turned off. Um, but there's a lot of things we can do during the day and leading up to it that can make our performance in sleep better um, and more fulfilling and that can later affect the quality of your next days. So I don't know if I really answered that question. It's kind of a, a paragraph of, <laughs> of how uh, I feel about sleep. I think you did. And I think everybody at some point in their life has experienced how sleep can affect their performance in other areas. Right. Yeah. Um, whether it's like a time where they're not getting enough sleep and feeling really lethargic or tired yeah. or like they're not performing during the day. Um, right. So it, ma- it makes sense that we've all kind of anecdotally felt that. But I really right. love how you're looking to establish a scientific connection um, right. that can really show that and provide a base on which we can begin to provide interventions on sleep. Right. Yeah, exactly. You maybe touched on this a little bit with sleep routines. Can you explain to me what sleep hygiene is? These are the the activities and, and the things that you either do or don't do um, in order to better help your sleep. So it, it includes both behavioral and environmental changes. So sleep hygiene could include, you know, having, having a healthy routine before going to bed. So maybe brushing your teeth, turning your phone off, you know, for the 30 minutes before bed, um, reading a book. That could be your routine kind of aimed towards getting better sleep. Like I said, with environment, um, a lot of people, some people could have those white noise kinds of um, sound machines and having comfortable bedding. Um, it's kind of the way that you take care of yourself for sleep, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. I love how you mentioned sleep deprivation is a problem specifically in the homeless population. Mm-hmm. Um, but in some of the materials you sent me before this interview, um, I found it interesting that the CDC has labeled sleep deprivation an epidemic in America. Yeah. So can can you speak to that? Another interesting point, like you said, uh, 35% of Americans don't get the recommended seven to nine hours of sleep a night, which is over a third of our population. And that's just a general population. So that's why they did, they labeled it a public health epidemic. And so the CDC is recognizing what a big issue that is because there is so much research now about how sleep impacts our health. And so if one third of our population is not getting the sleep that we really need, that's really, it's really scary and pretty sad, actually. I think, um, I think a lot of it has to do, there's a lot of good books out there. Um, Ariana Huffington has a really good one called Thrive, where she talks about this a lot, but like the productivity culture and how people kind of like wear it as a badge of honor when they're like, oh yeah, you know, I only got five hours of sleep last night. Like it's a positive thing that they're kind of like pushing through all of that and like getting all these things done and it's kind of like the culture in the world that we live in where you kind of put sleep last on your priority list. So yeah, I think it's really sad. I also think it's cool that it seems like Ariana is a name specifically for sleep researchers. <laughs> I know. I thought it was so cool too. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a really interesting point though. And I think it can be related to o- occupational therapy's role in working with people and how we can help them change kind of their perceptions of sleep. Um, and really start to maybe change uh, a little bit of that culture. Yeah, I agree. I think, honestly, like one, one like seemingly small step towards that is just us asking more about sleep. I don't think as a profession that we do that enough, including me before all of my research, like I'm not going to pretend that I asked about sleep in every interview because I didn't. But 
just I think by asking questions about it and showing that there are health professionals that are genuinely interested in how you're sleeping because it is important. It kind of gives them them a sign that yes, sleep is something very important that that we should all take seriously, I think. And I think that could be one way for them, for people to start to recognize the importance. Absolutely. And since we're there, what would you say is occupational therapy's role in sleep? Something huge that we focus on all the time is habits and routines and helping people with behavioral changes, whether that's managing chronic illness or whatever it is, we're helping people change and develop new habits and routines all the time. And sleep hygiene, like I was saying earlier, is all about environmental changes, behavioral changes. Um, those are things that we're already used to doing. Um, we don't need to be trained on how to you know, work with the environment to better increase performance or you know, think about behavioral changes to better increase sleep performance. Like it might be a new area of intervention, but OTs, it seems like just the perfect fit. Like those are the kinds of things that we work with day to day, regardless of what kind of client you have, whether it's a stroke, um, someone that is recovering from a stroke, someone with mental illness, you know, a kiddo, you're always working on those things and looking at, you know, the person factors and the environment. And if we look at those things and how this person is sleeping, we can work to adapt the environment or help them come up with new routines uh, before bed or during the day that might help them sleep better. And then that might help them engage better in their daily activities. So I think we have a huge role. I just don't think that we know it yet. <laughs> the potential is there though. And yeah. the OT skills are there. So I, I think that was right. a great, great start. What, what tools are out there that practitioners could use for assessment and interventions related to sleep? I'm kind of biased to the, the promise measures because I use them in my study, but I just think that they're pretty awesome. They're standardized assessments for anyone that doesn't know what they are. They're free um, and they're in the, I think they're funded by the NIH. And so they're just um, patient report questionnaires. And the ones I'm talking about are, uh, there's one called sleep disturbance and then one called fatigue, daytime fatigue. And I think both of those scales are really easy um, to understand and use. Um, and clients answer questions on how they're sleeping. And then for the fatigue, they'll answer questions on, you know, if fatigue impacts their daily activities, and these are not specific to OT, but they kind of fit OT really well, I think. And people could use these at intake, and then they could also use them um, at the end and kind of see, you know, where someone hopefully made progress with how they feel they're sleeping and probably, hopefully less daytime fatigue and less, less impacting, I guess, their, their occupations during the day. So I think those promise tools, and there's probably more um, promise tools that I don't know about that would fit. Also, there's a really, really cool, it's like a, an occupational, occupational interview. I think it's called Occupational Profile of Sleep um, from Stolfo and Brown's OT and Mental Health book. It's like a two-page questionnaire asking really detailed, good OT questions like, with the environment and ask, you know, what kind of bed do you sleep on? What kind of bedding is on your bed? Do you sleep with another person? Do you sleep with animals? What, you know, what do you wear to sleep? What's the temperature? And then it asks questions about like, do you exercise during the day? Do you have alcohol during the day or night? Same with caffeine. So it goes into a lot of questions um, about the person's daily routine um, and evening routine, as well as the environment that the person sleeps in. I think that is a really cool tool that OTs could use. There's another one 
called the PSQI. It's kind of like a gold standard sort of sleep questionnaire. Um, I haven't personally used it, but I do know it's, a, it's also a good kind of standardized questionnaire if you're looking for that sort of thing. But the interview, I think the occupational profile of sleep, that, that's the coolest measure, I think. And again, it's specific to OT. So that's really great. Yeah, these sound like some great tools and, and measures. How hard would you say it would be for a practitioner to look at these assessments or tools and incorporate them right away? I think, honestly, as far as assessment tools, it would be very easy to include them in, in their intake. So I think maybe starting generally out by asking during your interview with the person um, how they're sleeping, how much they're, they're sleeping on average, and kind of trying to get a feel of, does this person seem like they might have um, issues with their sleep, or are they reporting that they sleep great, you know, they sleep eight hours every night, they never have problems with their sleep, you know, if, if it's like that, then maybe that it might not be necessary to include, but if someone even is giving you a little bit of a sense of they don't sleep that well, these questionnaires, both of the promise ones I was talking about, maybe takes like five to 10 minutes for the person to take, depending on the person's situation and ability to read. Um, I had to read mine out loud to some of the clients, but that still only took, you know, like five-ish minutes. There's not much that the OT has to do to kind of get used to those tools. Um, it's really pretty easy and quick. That's why I love those tools. They're, they're really handy. With the occupational profile of sleep, um, that interview I was talking about, that one will take a little longer. I think that would be more warranted if the person is giving you some kind of indication that they're having trouble sleeping so you can get a better idea of what exactly their sleep environment looks like and what exactly their routines are so you can figure out, you know, which ways you want to intervene. I really think as far as intake, that that's the easy part, I think, with um, handling sleep in OT. So intake's the easy part. What then would a treatment session to design yeah. to improve someone's sleep look like? Yeah, I think treatment would be the harder part. But again, because because OTs are familiar with behavioral change and we know that it does take a long time to change any routine and any habit. It's not going to happen overnight. So we can't expect that if we tell somebody, you know, you should try a sound machine and decreasing the temperature in your room that, you know, it's going to happen within the next week. They're going to be sleeping great. It's going to take time for the person to implement the changes. It might take some more effort on the part of the OT. So most of my work is in home health. So it's easier for me because I, I would get to see the environment that they sleep in. And I, I think it's easier to understand that when you're actually physically there. However, even as a home health OT, I'm not there with them at night when they're going to sleep. So I do not like, I won't be there to help them implement those habits. It's still difficult in that way. Um, especially if you have people like I, like I had some clients that have trouble with initiation so getting them to start implementing new habits is, it might, you know, take some time depending on the population and the person. Um, so I think it's just patience. And then also if you are in a different setting, like if you're working in a hospital, um, let's say like inpatient, um, you don't, your environment that they're working with there obviously is not the same as what it's going to be like at home, but it doesn't mean you can't start the process and start helping the person develop some habits that they might be able to tr carry over with their transition. So I think um, it's not easy and it will be completely different for each person. Like somebody might benefit more from one intervention while another person that might actually make their sleep worse, you know, it, it's just, 
one of those things that I think takes some time and patience and creativity on the part of the OT. You mentioned like a sound machine and, and scheduling and really changing someone's routines and habits. What kind of other types of treatments are there that could be used to help someone sleep? Yeah, progressive muscle relaxation. I've used PMR before um, where during a treatment session, you know, just during the day, I would teach a client how to do PMR and walk them through it. I actually, <laughs> I had one lady fall asleep during intervention. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, cool. That works. So I would just do like a quick um, having the person lay down and walk them through. You can start head to toe. You can go from toe all the way up and you work on them tensing their muscles and then relaxing and then tensing and relaxing and you move up the body. Um, and it's meant to, it's meant to relax you and, and help you kind of release some tension. And so there's that. And then there's also um, things like mindfulness and breathing um, activities that you can um, help people incorporate kind of as part of their bedtime routine to get themselves kind of in a calmer state, depending on the reason that they can't sleep. Um, a lot of people, it's anxiety. So I think those are good tools. There's other things you can, you kind of like play with all of the senses. So like that kind of relaxes your body physically. And then there's a sense of smell. So like they use lavender and eucalyptus, those kinds of scents are, are good and calming and help people sleep. Let's see, the sound machine, you know, some people like white noise, some people want silence. So earbuds for those kinds of people that maybe can't get the silence in there because they have pets or kids or, you know, a partner. There's some apps on your phone you can use. I actually saw this really cool alarm clock that it like, it has different colors. And so like one might be more calming for you if you like just like a warm light at night you can change the color and then it actually wakes you up um, with a fake sunrise. So like 30 minutes before the alarm goes off, it'll start to slowly like brighten. Um, that's supposed to help you wake up more gently. Those are kind of some environmental things, but it's also so dependent on what you do during the day too. So they recommend not eating two hours before bed, not having caffeine at night, exercising during the day, but not too close to bed because it might wake you up. Another big thing is they recommend, like the bed is for sleep and sex only. So a lot of people will like watch TV in bed um, and that's not really good. Your brain associates your bed with wakefulness. And so um, for the same reason, they say if you're up for, in the middle of the night for more than 20 minutes, you're supposed to get up and get out of your bed and go read or something in the other room because you don't want your brain to start to associate your bed with wakefulness. You want it to be only for sleep and rest. I love that. I think it's easy for a practitioner to sit back and think, well, it's too difficult to really simulate sleep in a clinical setting. But right. I mean, you just listed off, I don't know, maybe around 20 interventions. Yeah, sorry. That's, no, no that's, that's, that's totally fine. I think it's a great example of, of how much there is out there that OTs yeah. could do to help people. Let's go ahead and dive into your study. Okay. So you conducted a study titled Sleep Deprivation in an American Homeless Population. Mm -hmm. How was this project set up? Walk us through your process, if you will. I worked with um, Dr. Chaminsky and the homeless organization in St. Louis to recruit clients. So I had 32 participants in the study, and it was a mixed method study. So I had a demographic survey that just kind of asked some basic questions and then it asked questions about how 
how many hours on average people are sleeping, where people are sleeping, whether it's outside or in a shelter, those kinds of questions. And then I did ask questions about um, how many hospitalizations have you had in the last year and how would you rate your health and your sleep? And then I administered um, those two promise measures, the one for sleep disturbance and fatigue. I took those scores, plus I took the information from the demographic survey. In the demographic survey, it did also have some qualitative questions. Um, so those kinds of questions were analyzed, and I came up with kind of the results. And these are all people um, experiencing homelessness. So what are the barriers to sleep? Because there's not that much information um, as far as research information out there on why people might have a difficult time sleeping as someone experiencing homelessness. Um, although there are a lot of news articles on that kind of stuff, but nothing really research-based. So I asked people barriers, what, what are supports to sleep? And I did ask if they would be interested in finding ways to better their sleep and why. So those are some examples of what the qualitative questions looked like. What did you find? I found that 75% of that population slept less than the seven to nine hours recommended. So if we remember, 35% of the general population sleeps less than seven hours a night, um, but 75% of these, this sample slept less than seven hours. I found the average amount of sleep within um, these individuals was 5.29 hours, and they scored almost one standard deviation above the mean for both of those promised measures, which means they had more uh, daytime fatigue and more sleep disturbances as compared to the general population. It was shocking, but not really. I was kind of expecting something like that. And then as far as barriers, mostly people talked about the environment as the biggest barrier, and it makes sense. They talk about how even in the shelter, it's super uncomfortable. The, the cots are really hard. A lot of people talked about how you can feel the bars underneath the cot through the mattress because the mattress is so thin. Um, and people talk about how they have like bad backs. And so that doesn't help having, you know, the bed be so uncomfortable. And they also talked about how, the temperature, how cold it was in the shelters and outside the shelters too. And I think one of the biggest environmental barriers was actually other people. It kind of puts people in a place where they can't really let their guard down. And at sleep, that's the most vulnerable thing that we do. And so you can't, if you feel like you can't really put your guard down because you have to be vigilant of others and you're afraid someone might steal something or, you know, hurt you. Um, and they talked about the noise levels being high. And sometimes people were drunk or high inside the shelter and people would get in fights and all that kind of stuff. That's the sleep environment that they have. So that was a pretty big bar barrier. And then for people sleeping outside, you know, the weather was a huge barrier. They don't, you know, if it's raining or snowing cold or hot. Those were big barriers. And then more barriers were emotions um, and thoughts before bed. So a lot of people did express feelings of like depression and anxiety and feeling helpless or hopeless about their situations or not being able to turn off their brains because they felt like they have so much to do the next day and that kind of thing. And I also did this study, it kind of correlated with the, the study I talked about published in JAMA in France. This study found that one-third of the sample used substances in order to fall asleep, and this was not just drugs and alcohol, but drugs, alcohol, over-the-counter medications and prescription medications. 
And so that was consistent with the JAMA study. They also had about a third of the population using substances in order to fall asleep. That was kind of like uh, the biggest support to sleep that people reported when I asked them, what are things that help you sleep? So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, it, huh. it sounds like there's there's so many barriers affecting this population. How do you think that your findings from this study could be used to help people transition out of homelessness? So the study was really like, it was really sad. It was hard um, to be kind of the person hearing all of these stories and hearing about how difficult it is to sleep. Because again, going back to Maslow, I'm like, well, if they're not sleeping, how are we expecting them to do anything else? It's kind of like, it's cruel. Um, So as far as where to go from there, there's two students um, in Dr. Chminsky's lab that took on my, um, the extensions of this project. And so the extensions were one direction to go in is to educate shelter staff on the importance of sleep. So kind of share this information and, and share why it's so important for this population to get better sleep if we're truly expecting and wanting them to overcome homelessness. They really need better opportunities to sleep and get rest. And so um, not only education on the importance of sleep, but education on different things the shelter might be able to do. Like one idea is around bedtime, kind of have like a nightly routine where there's kind of like a meditation session before bed, or there's some quiet time that they implement um, and maybe like provide books, like something like that, or earbuds for people that want to block out the noise at night. A lot, some shelters have lockers and some don't, but you know, lockers help people feel that their stuff is safe at night and that they don't have to protect their stuff while they're sleeping. So those are kind of some examples that we're kind of sharing with shelters as ways that we can try to start addressing this um, issue. More expensive would be, you know, better bedding materials. That's a big one, um, but it's really truly needed. And then another way, another student, that's one direction one student is taking. And then the other student is working on kind of exploring like OT intervention in this population. So despite the environment being a huge, huge barrier, um, she's trying to see if one-on-one or group intervention can affect sleep. So she's working with a group of women in this program that they sleep at the shelter. And so she is going to do kind of like a series of group interventions on sleep and mindfulness and use Fitbits to kind of track their sleep pre and post intervention. So that's kind of another direction. So there's, you're addressing the bigger organization, trying to help get everybody on the same page for sleep advocacy. And then the other side of it is, let's see if intervention, you know, works if we, if we intervene at the person level. So that's kind of where this project's going and what we're hoping to see have some impact. Those are some exciting future directions. And I wanted to ask if you could maybe share a clinical example or story of how some of those interventions or or sleep interventions led to a positive outcome for a client that you saw. So with this population, the study that I did was kind of preliminary and the students are in the middle of getting their project started. So we haven't really got an opportunity to see how that's going to work, I guess. It's really still exploratory. But I can talk about a client that I have that's not homeless, but I can talk about kind of how that looks. Yeah, absolutely. I think that'd be great. So I have a client, he has severe depression. His issue, and he kind of, I talked about him a little without you you knowing, (laughs) but he has a lot of issues with initiation, especially of new habits, routines, and 
he's admitted that, yeah, he's not been sleeping well. He'll go to sleep probably at like 3 a.m. And he'll sleep in until maybe 11 or 12. And then he'll be super upset with himself because he'll miss his morning yoga class because he slept in. And so he wants to wake up earlier. And so we're talking, we had been talking about ways to help him sleep better. He also had the issue where he would go to bed at three, but then he'd wake up at 5 a.m. And he would be so awake that he would get up and start doing an activity in the middle of the night for a few hours, or he'd get up and watch TV. So he also, before bed, um, he would just sit there and watch TV for hours. He would also snack on like chips and cookies and ice cream before bed. So these are the kinds of things I found out with lots of questioning um, to see what does his day look like, and especially right before bed, what is he doing and how that could be impacting how he's sleeping. And like I, I said already, he does have severe depression. So uh, we know that depression um, can also impact your sleep and vice versa. So if you're not sleeping well, um, your depression symptoms could be a lot worse. And actually, the uh, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, SAMHSA, they even go as far as to say that if a person with mental illness is not sleeping well, it'll affect them so much that all other interventions are going to be ineffective. So that's how important sleep can be, especially for people with mental illness. And so I was really pushing for this client to focus on sleep. And at first he was kind of about it, but not really that important to him. But as we worked, I had him kind of, we collaborated to think about what does he want to be doing before bed? Um, We talked about, you know, why it's not really good to snack before bed and watch TV. But then I asked him like, what do you, what would you like your nighttime routine to look like? And so that turned into him saying, well, maybe, maybe I want to try meditating and maybe I want to brush my teeth because I'm not used to brushing my teeth at night anymore. So those are the two things. And I told him, even if it's not meditating, like maybe a light stretch, because he also is into yoga. So we agreed that he would make time for himself to brush his teeth and do either stretch or meditation before bed. Um, and try to go to bed between 11 and 12. And so that was the first goal. And he did really, really well for a while, implementing new routines and then also exercising more during the days. And the other thing was for him to get out in the sunlight um, during the day if it was nice out. So getting outside and in daylight, that's another um, tip for sleep hygiene. And so those are the kinds of things that we tried with him. And it was really successful there for a while. He was getting up earlier, probably around nine o'clock in the morning and going to bed around 11 or 12. Um, And he told me that he felt less depressed and he felt more motivated and like he had more energy through the day when he did stick to that routine. So that, I think that's kind of an example of some of the things. And like I said, it's not, he's not even a hundred percent with his new routine yet. It's still a process. So just an example. No, that's a, that's a great example of some of the positive benefits that can come from sleep. But just like with changing any routine, it's it's going to take a while. Right, exactly. I also thought when you were describing your client's old sleep routine, it kind of sounded like my uh, quarantine sleep routine. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I was thinking that. I'm like, oh my gosh, people are going to get into this funky sleep routine and they're going to be like in shock when they go back to work and everything. Yeah, that, that's another reason I was so excited for this interview because I was like, yes, like I need to like start changing my sleep routine. Like this will be great for me. Yes. <laughs> Good timing. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, Ariana, while here, you've also done some work for the Department of Corrections. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I thought now we'd talk some about that work. Yeah, that was super exciting. Well, I did that as my deck, but I, I spent two semesters um, doing independent studies with Dr. Baum. I originally went to her because I was just interested in this population of previously incarcerated individuals, and I always have been. Always wanted to try to get my foot in the door working with them um, as an OT because I just, again, with the habits and routines and transition, I think those are huge places for OTs, um, any kind of transition at all. So I was really interested in working with this population. I went to Dr. Baum and she actually had a shared interest, which is not what I was expecting. I was actually expecting her to help me with electives, like choosing which elective might be right for me based on my interests, but she had shared interests. She also had a colleague, sort of a colleague, um, a lawyer that she knew that was interested in partnering with an OT, doing some of this work. So we spent two semesters looking into Missouri state prisons um, and just federal prison in general, looking at policies related to both and developing an OT program. And so for my deck, I actually got to implement that program um, here in Missouri at what they're called is community supervision centers. So CSCs, they're places where if a person that has been in prison is marked as high risk for recidivism or moderate risk, they are court ordered to go to a community supervision center for 90 to 120 days before entering the community. So it's kind of like a step down when they're saying they're not quite ready for the community, but they can leave prison. And this is supposed to help them re-enter with less risk of recidivism in the end. And I think there's such a need for that in our country. I did a lot of research on recidivism for developing a a practice model. And over 60% of of inmates who are released are rearrested within three years. And after five years, it's over 70%. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So there's there's definitely a need. So the goal of your program is to help community reintegration go more smoothly and to reduce recidivism. How is your program set up to facilitate that? Yeah. So we focus on um, reducing recidivism, but mostly here in Missouri, 50% of the reason for recidivism is um, due to technical violations. So not necessarily new crimes that people are are committing, but they're forgetting to fill out information or not meeting their PO at the right time or missing an appointment with a PO or not showing up to court or moving without notifying their PO of the move. It's all, those are all technical violations that once you're released into the community, you have to, you're still under supervision um, and you still have to adhere to all these different rules and regulations. And if you don't show up or complete these things, you, it's a technical violation and that can send you back to prison. And so in Missouri, that's 50% of why people go back to prison, which Dr. Baum and I thought was insane. <laughs> and so yeah. we, our program is mostly targeted to um, help reduce recidivism recidivism in Missouri, mainly due to technical violations, because we saw there such a cognitive component, because you can't really expect people to do those tasks unless they have the skills. And the skills required are, I mean, there's a lot of higher level cognitive skills required, like paying attention and being able to remember things and organization and how to use a schedule and time management and how to get transportation, like all these things that might be like day-to-day things for a lot of us, but for people that have been in an environment that's 100% structured, all decisions are made for them. And then they're in the community where 
they're supposed to get everything done on their own as well as try to reintegrate back into society and they have all of this choice and no structure it's really not easy um and some of these people may have been in prison for so long that maybe they learned these skills at one point but they no longer have these skills because they've they've not had to use them and so they either need to be retaught or they maybe have never learned ever in their lives um so these are the skills those kind of cognitive skills and problem solving that we really focused on so i guess what it looked like was i worked in one of the supervision centers out in hannibal and i had it changed a lot but in a good way because i wanted it to be really collaborative working with the department so i ended up having five individuals where i i saw them for one on one ot intervention and so i saw them while they were residing in the supervision center and then once they were released i didn't have a lot of time with them post release because of covid but i had enough time with them beforehand to see some significant changes and then I also ran some groups inside the CSC and outside of the CSC for the rest of the residents because I started to see a greater need there that I thought could be addressed with groups and a lot of people wanted things to do. So we did some some group work, but then I also had my five individuals where I did one-on-one interventions for about three months. It, it sounds like a, a very well-designed and widely implemented program. What did your interventions with your clients look like? So a lot of um, what this population had difficulty with was exactly what we predicted was organizing and problem solving. Um, And a huge area was goal setting. There is some research actually with OT in this setting, working with smart goal planning and how it helps people um, learn those skills to plan goals and actually follow through. And so I started using smart goal planning with all of my clients mostly to teach them how to set goals. And so we focused on all those different pieces, specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound goals. And having people go through each of those steps is kind of like teaching them a skill, like teaching them the process of setting the goal so that they can actually hit it. Um, Because a lot of my clients were talking about how they'll set goals that are way too high, and then they get really mad at themselves when they don't hit it. So they kind of just give up. So goal planning was really huge, actually. So we did that with every client. All of them were trying to maintain their sobriety, and they all did during my pilot, at least. So we talked about with that ways, other ways to engage themselves and and what kinds of things they could do. Um, And so we talked about leisure a lot. And um, one of the groups that I ran in the CSE was a leisure group because of this very thing, kind of trying to show people some what they call uh, pro-social activities that shows people that you can have fun and engage in fun things with people that are sober and you can be sober and still have fun kind of thing. So there are activities that we were trying to, I was trying to provide opportunities for people to have a chance to engage in and have a chance to kind of see what that could look like beyond drugs and alcohol. All the guys there, at least when I was there, they were all struggling with that. So Addiction is a huge piece working with this population, and I think leisure plays such a big role. I taught someone how to do their taxes on TurboTax. Um, I had a lot of technology intervention sessions, like a lot of figuring out how to use the computer, creating an email on the computer, doing job applications on the computer, all that stuff, using a, a phone, not even a smartphone, like just a normal phone. Someone you know, had a lot of trouble with that because he hadn't had to use that. He's been in and out of prison 
I think, uh, 25 years. So it's, you know, there's a lot, a lot of stuff that changes. And so working on that kind of technical side and then creating a budget, we did that. I did that with a few guys, medication management, organization, um, and maintaining a clean living environment while they were there in the CSC so that it could hopefully transition to their home when they moved out. There's a lot of things that we worked on. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like your program had specific skills that are to be focused on with everybody, but it was also important to adapt your interventions to the needs and abilities of each of your clients. Yeah, exactly. That's so awesome. And what were what were the outcomes? How did uh, participants enjoy being a part of the program? What did you see the program's effect on their lives was? The program, despite the short time period um, and despite not being able to kind of carry, like, because my goal was to carry it out partially in the CSC, but the other half of it was supposed to be in the community because I think that transition is so, so crucial to have somebody consistent and somebody to help you with the transition. And, and despite not really being able to do that because COVID came like right towards that area, it cut out like two or three weeks that would have been in the community. But even without that, there were a lot of positive changes. We, I did some of those promise measures with this population for pre and post test. And we saw significant changes in self-efficacy in self-efficacy for managing emotions and reduction of anxiety and reduction of sleep disturbances. We also saw moderate positive changes in reduced feelings of social isolation um, after participating in the study. And the clients, as far as qualitative data, everybody <clears throat> liked the program and, and kind of talked about how it helped them learn skills that they wouldn't have wouldn't have focused on otherwise. I also did a lot of staff interviews. I interviewed seven different staff members because I really, really wanted to see with this pilot kind of like the feasibility of implementing a program like this. And so I took their answers to, I think, seven or eight questions to help me determine that. And the staff were all super, super supportive and excited. They all talked about how um, they've seen significant changes in some of these clients that they've seen year in and year out without any positive changes. And suddenly they're seeing them focus on different areas of their life that they never focused on. They're seeing them actually stick to the sobriety when they said previously when they would get out, they would relapse right away. So there are no staff that said anything poor about the program. The only negative thing they said, or the only, uh, I think, barrier is that I was only there three days a week and they wanted me there more. And so it was just like overwhelmingly positive feedback from the staff and the clients, but it just, it's really exciting because like I said, I wasn't there that, that long, but you could tell with the staff interview, um, their answers to the questions, how open-minded they are after seeing what OT is and what OT can do in the setting. And it was like a transformative process. It went from them seeing kind of in black and white to suddenly they're seeing all these different areas that they're realizing more and more that we need to focus on these life skills and life skills. That was like a huge theme in both participant and um, staff interviews, how, how there's such a, a need there and how this program addresses those needs and how POs don't do that. That's not their job, but there's not really anyone that does that. So yeah, it was just really good outcomes and responses. I'm, I'm happy your pilot study was so successful and it also to me serves as a testament of you spreading 
occupational therapy in general and and growing our role into this new emerging area and demonstrating our value to other professions and other areas yeah. as well. Yeah, I think that's funny you said that because one of the staff themes uh, were about how there was some initial hesitancy in the beginning that kind of transformed into overall increased engagement and behavior. One person told me like, oh, I was, I'm going to tell you, I was super skeptical at first. I was like, what, OT here? But then she kind of sat down and learned more. And now it's really broadened her view. And, and she talks about her client, like how different he is and how much more engaged he is, not only just in OT, but in the other programming there after participating. So it's, it's cool to have, to feel like I was kind of spreading that this is what OT can look like here, you know, to a different population. I love that. I love that. All right, Ari, to kind of conclude the interview now, I want to ask you some more personal or opinion type questions about your projects. Mm-hmm. Um, to start off with a good one, what have you enjoyed most about the projects you've done here at WashU? I couldn't even tell you like one thing that I've enjoyed most. I think for both of these projects, it was just being able to explore two different underserved populations and kind of get down and dirty with what exactly it is that they need and what they are going through. And it kind of feels like in a way I can help advocate for both of them, um, like be kind of like a voice in, in transmitting those needs because I feel like a lot of these people, well, I don't feel like I know um, anecdotally, especially that all these people don't feel like they have a voice. So kind of being able to get in there and see what the need is and hear their voices and then, come out here and relay it in research terms and kind of show people like, this is what people are experiencing and this is what they need. And maybe this is how we can help. I think that's really, that's really the biggest takeaway for me in both, both of these studies. What do you hope that occupational therapy practitioners take away from your findings? I hope that with the sleep one, I hope that people kind of think about it more and can recognize that it really would not be that difficult to try to incorporate it at least a little bit, at least ask about it. It affects every other occupation that this person engages in. So it's something that we really should be focusing more on and placing more attention and focus on and helping people learn, you know, ways to sleep better. I think that's super important and an area of practice that we, that's already in our OTPF. It's just we need to expand and, and people should be asking it no matter what setting and no matter what population. So that's, that's the one thing with the sleep study. And then I don't think that, you know, anyone who listens to these or this podcast needs to focus on underserved populations. But I, I guess the takeaway is how much of a need there really is out there in probably every population, not even underserved populations, but just the fact that if we really dig deep enough, like we can help to discover some some of these areas that we just fit in really, really, really well and then help advocate for our, our spot there. Absolutely. What resources would you recommend to listeners if they want to learn more about one of these topics? So for sleep, AOTA has a sleep sheet. Um, then there's sleepot.org, I think. I was talking about the book Thrive by Ariana Huffington and Sleep Revolution by Ariana Huffington. Those are just really good books about sleep. And also there's a really good one about why we sleep by Matthew Walker. He also did a podcast. I'm sorry, I can't remember who he was interviewed by, but he's amazing. I just think learning more about sleep um, and the culture that we have now, all of that is really helpful. So my sleep study, I published in Sleep Health, which is the journal for the National Sleep Foundation. 
So you can find research um, or my research there. And then we're working on publishing the study with the DOC in a criminal justice journal. So that's kind of to be determined. Yeah, I think those are some good places to start. Two more questions. The last mm-hmm. one's going to be the golden nugget segment. But before that, oh, I, <laughs> I want to ask if there's anyone you would like to acknowledge or thank in the completion of your research. Oh, my gosh. I feel like there's so many people. Um, but I think the two main people are Dr. Quinn Tominsky and Dr. Carolyn Baum. They've both been my mentors throughout my process, just getting my OTD. And then in both of these projects, I tell people all the time and tell them, like, I, I would not have been able to do these projects without them. And I feel so grateful um, for both of them. They're both really amazing practitioners and amazing scholars. So that's, I feel lucky. And I think with my my DOC project, I also want to acknowledge I had an advisory committee. Um, and so in addition to Dr. Baum and Dr. Um, Tominsky, I had Dr. Lisa Yeagers from SLU. I had a colleague, um, Jacob Eikenberry, um, social work PhD student from SLU. Um, I had a student, Cole Grease. He's a first year this year. He's helping me with some of the writing of this. And I also had um, a lawyer, um, Stanley Edelman. And then I also had the director of the CSC I was at, uh, Kevin Knickerbocker. So their advice, you know, I met with them in the beginning, in the middle, and then I will meet with them tomorrow for post-study advisory committee. So that's been, that was really great. And to have the support of people that I feel like are very knowledgeable in the field and can kind of help push my dreams forward basically is what they did. So um, yeah, I'd like to acknowledge all of them. Absolutely. Sounds like a great team. Yeah, it was. All right, Ari, last question. What's one thing that you've learned from your time here at WashU that you wish everyone knew? Oh, that is a gold nugget question. (laughs) I think Brene Brown said it in one of her talks, like a human is a human. Everybody has their own problems in different ways, but like it's kind of getting down, again, down and dirty with what exactly is this person going through and connecting. There's an overwhelming sense of like equality and humanity that came from my experiences, especially working with underserved populations, but just in general, I think it's something that everybody needs to keep in mind, especially as practitioners, but just you know, as a human, um, that everybody is a human. No matter someone's circumstances or the barriers that they're facing, they're, they're valuable and exactly. their occupations matter and, and what yeah. gives their life meaning matters. Yes. Thank you. That was way better articulated. Than what I was saying. <laughs> no worries. We help each other out. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much again for your time, Ari. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great. Thanks for listening to How to OT. Tune in next time for another episode where we bring accessible and consumable research straight to you. I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. My phone's Google Assistant just started talking to me. Sorry. (laughs) It said, I found this on Wikipedia. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so I guess they already found your research on Wikipedia. Right, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day, every, every single day. Everybody's no, I think we're good. Thank you. Ooh. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I said that. I should have said that, but would, do you think that would be helpful? 
crazy. Yeah, they looked like a lot of things. <laughs> it was very interesting. Let's see. Oh. I'm on vacation. Illuminate my future bright, so thankful for everything. Rejuvenating my inner light as I work hard for all I need. Open arms, embracing life, and all the which you gave me. I work, it pays off. I'm happy now, it's paying me. Well, Ariana, I, I, I mean, I'm just gonna call you Ari because I feel comfortable doing that. Is that right with you? Yeah, that feels more, more normal. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. Please hold. I'm on vacation every single day, every every single day. You know. If that makes any any sense at all. Because I love my occupation. Hey, I'm on vacation. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it. What the heck is this?